Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. On May 2nd, 1962, Clairvius Narcisse was pronounced dead after suffering a brief illness and was buried in a cemetery near his village. In 1981, he returned to the village, claiming he had spent two years as a zombie slave controlled by a powerful Haitian voodoo sorcerer. This case and the phenomenon of zombification was investigated by ethnobotanist Wade Davis in his book, The Serpent and the Rainbow, which served as the basis for Wes Craven's 1988 film of the same name. This is based on a true crime. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode seven of Based on a True Crime. My name is Chelsea, and I love true crime. And my name is David, and I love horror movies. So we want to start out by giving a couple of shout outs to people who guessed our post as to what we would be covering for this week. And that was Joel at TwitchPod on Twitter, also at CarrieMarie19 on Instagram, and Jeremy on Facebook. So thanks for participating and for guessing correctly the topic of this episode. Yeah, a lot of people were also saying uh, how much they really love this movie. So we're really excited for the episode this week. And we hope that uh, those of you who really like the movie will like hearing a little bit more about the real backstory. And we'd also like to give a quick shout out to some feedback that we've gotten over the last week. Uh, we'd like to give a shout out to DSativa99 for his iTunes review. Also, Suzanne, Megan, April, and Amber on Facebook. Thanks for your feedback. And uh, please leave reviews. Yes, getting positive feedback in the form of iTunes reviews or just tweets at us and posts on Facebook has really been you know, motivating us to get our research done on time and record our episodes. So we're, we're really happy with the feedback we're getting and we're hoping that we can get more, especially a couple more of them uh, iTunes reviews. Uh, yeah. And speaking of posting on social media, we have a contest going on Instagram right now, which involves reposting our image and just following a couple of simple instructions. So please be sure to check us out on Instagram at based on a true crime and hopefully you can win some cool prizes. The, uh, the theme for the giveaway is In Cold Blood, so you can look for that episode probably uh, towards the end of August, so I'm looking forward to that one. It's, it's a big case, and there's a, a lot out there for me to review, and I'm doing my research. I'm really excited to really get into it. But this week, we are going to be discussing the case of real-life zombie, Clarvius Narcisse. And he caused uh, quite a stir in 1981 when he seemingly returned from the grave after being declared dead and buried more than 18 years prior. His case attracted international media with uh, newspapers and magazines running images of Clairvius sitting on his own grave. And his case also ended up attracting attention from the scientific community um, because it is the most documented instance of these Haitian zombies. And as a result, Harvard University sent Dr. Wade Davis, a young ethnobotanist, to investigate the scientific basis for zombification. He published a nonfiction book in 1985 about his travels to Haiti called The Serpent and the Rainbow. And this book ended up being adapted, well, very loosely adapted, I guess, for the screen in 1988 as a horror movie directed by uh, one of David's favorites, Wes Craven. Haha. <laughs> yeah, so finally an episode where you can talk as much as you want about Nightmare on Elm Street, but only in your movie portion, not in my research portion. Yeah, no, yeah. don't worry. We'll <laughs> I'll I'll hold on to that until we talk about the movie. Yeah. So, um but yeah, this is a really fascinating case. I'm I'm looking forward to to talking about it. Yeah, and also kind of timely in a sad way. Uh, a couple days ago, we lost the creator of the zombie uh, George Romero so we're not talking about Romero zombies here we're talking about voodoo zombies yeah we're taking a step back yeah 
So not much is known about Clairvius Narcisse's life before the death that he is famous for, except that he was born in Lestere, a commune in Haiti, in 1922. On April 30th of 1962, when he was 40 years old, Clairvius was admitted to the Albert Schweitzer Hospital in Haiti. His symptoms included a fever, body aches, trouble breathing, and he said he felt like bugs were crawling on his skin. There were two doctors at the hospital. One was from the U.S. and the other was trained in the U.S. And the doctors diagnosed him with hypotension and pulmonary edema, but his condition continued to deteriorate. And on May 2nd, he was pronounced dead. His sister, Marie Claire, uh, not to be confused with the magazine Marie Claire, she signed his death certificate with a thumbprint and his body remained in the morgue for 24 hours before he was returned to his village and buried in a nearby cemetery and his coffin was nailed shut. That seems final, right? (laughs) (laughs) Not quite. So we're going to fast forward to 1981, where Clairvius's sister, Angelica Narcisse, was shopping in an open-air market in their village when a man approached her and identified himself as Clairvius Narcisse, using a nickname for himself from his childhood, which only he or members of their close family would know. Dr. Lamarck Duyon, a Haitian psychiatrist and director at the Center de Psychology et Neurology, Mars Klein, Haiti's only modern psychiatric facility, uh, confirmed Clairvius's identity through a series of questionnaires, which he answered perfectly. 200 witnesses, which included many of Clairvius's friends and family members, also agreed that this man was Clairvius Narcisse, back from the dead. And it seems likely, you know, he was 40 when he died and came back 18 years later it's not like a child went missing where the looks would change a lot in 18 years he might be older but i think it would be pretty obvious whether or not it's the same person yeah i think so i think you're right so not only had clarvius returned but his memories of his time away were intact including memories of being declared dead and of his burial he remembered angelica crying when he was pronounced dead and said that he felt the sheet being pulled over his face he said that he was lucid for the entire burial process while being unable to move or speak he also has a scar on his face which he claimed was a result of one of the nails that was driven into the coffin ouch so clarvius said that he remained in his coffin for an unknown period of time but finally the coffin was dug up by a bokor named uh, joseph Jean. Uh, Bokor is a Haitian voodoo sorcerer. They're said to serve the Loa, the voodoo spirits, uh, quote, with both hands. And that means that they engage in both light and dark magic. The Bokor and his henchmen beat Clairvius and bound and gagged him before taking him to a sugar plantation. At the plantation, Clairvius worked alongside other zombies. They toiled from sunup to sundown with only one meal each day. And all of them were given a concoction every day, kind of a paste, which Clairvius said kept them in this uh, semi-stupefied, essentially zombie-like state, completely devoid of will, and events during this time occurred um, almost as if they were in slow motion. And that sounds like hell. It sounds yeah. like living hell. <laughs> yeah, and essentially it is. We'll get into that a little bit later. You know, it's the ultimate hell, really. So after two years of labor, Clairvius was finally able to escape. Uh, one of his fellow zombies was being beaten for insubordination after he refused to eat for several days. And uh, during his beating, he managed to actually grab a hoe and he used it to kill the Bacor. So all of the zombies after that were able to escape. However, Clairvius did not return home right away because he believed that one of his brothers was the one that had actually arranged to have him turned into a zombie after they had disputed over their parents' land. So instead, he remained in northern Haiti near the plantation for about two years and then moved to a St. Michel de Adelaide. He wrote to his family, but his letters went unanswered. And he finally returned to his village only after he learned that the brother that he thought had kind of sold him into slavery had passed away. So it's already sounding like his return to life, so to speak, isn't going to be all that happy. Yeah, I can't imagine. You know, he was only a slave for two years and then spent 16 years just wandering aimlessly, not really being able to go back to his life, his pre-zombie life. Yeah, so after not being well-received going back to the village, and the authorities actually placed him in jail for his own protection after they determined that his life may be in danger. Yeah, I think people 
we're going for the headshots. No. Uh, <laughs> oh. Uh, as a result, Clairvius did not end up moving back to his village, and instead he stayed primarily with Dr. Duyon at his private clinic or at the refuge of the Baptist Mission. His case came to the attention of Dr. Nathan Klein, who was a prominent psychopharmacologist who had helped establish the Center of Psychology at Neurology Mars Klein, and he contacted Harvard University, who sent a recently graduated ethnobotanist, Dr. Wade Davis, to investigate the scientific basis for Clairvius' zombification. The doctors were hoping that whatever active agent that was inducing him into a death-like state could be used as an effective alternative to anesthesia. And Dr. Davis then met with Clairvius, who gave his account of his illness, his death, his resurrection, and the years spent as a zombie. When he asked Clairvius if he had been poisoned, he responded, quote, There was no poison, otherwise my bones would have rotted under the earth. The Bokor sent for my soul. That's how it was done. Of his burial, he recounted that, quote, Even as they cast dirt on my coffin, I was not there, but I floated here, moving wherever. I could hear everything that happened. Then they came. They had my soul. They called me, casting it into the ground. Although Clarvius's case of zombification is the most documented, this is a very deeply ingrained part of the Haitian voodoo culture and society there and generally there are kind of rules surrounding this uh, zombification ritual so generally a tribunal needs to be called to determine whether the transgression of an individual is enough to kind of be worthy of being turned into a zombie and sold into slavery which they called being sold to a society Davis had been told by uh, Hungan, a voodoo priest, that a tribunal was not summoned for Clairvius, but Clairvius claimed to have been taken for eight days of judgment actually after he had risen from the grave. His sister Angelica confirmed that if the tribunal occurred that night, no one would have known of it. And a cousin of his stated that, quote, there must be a tribunal in a case like that. They must call the dead. Otherwise, they cannot set the trap. And the trap, he specified, was not a poison, but rather something called coup powder. And he said that this powder was what created the zombie. Later, Davis would learn from uh, Jean-Jacques Leofin, one of the founding presidents of the Bazengo Secret Society in Haiti, that there are actually seven transgressions which could result in a person being uh, sold to society. All right. I'm really eager to hear them. So let's go. All right. So these transgressions are one, ambition, which was defined as uh, excessive material advancement at an obvious expense of family and dependence. Two is displaying a lack of respect for one's fellows. Three is denigrating the Bazengo societies. Four is stealing another man's woman. Five is spreading loose talk that slanders and affects the well-being of others. Six is harming members of one's family. And seven is land issues. Any action that unjustly keeps another from working the land. So kind of broad. <laughs> I would yeah, say pretty broad definitions. Broad. I feel like a lot of people could fall into... Yeah, uh, I I think we're pretty lucky that uh, zombification has not made it to the U.S. So Davis actually brought up Clairvius Narcisse with Leofin, and he immediately responded, quote, Narcisse's brother sold him to a society in Caho. It was the seventh condition. It was the parent's land. He tried to take it by force. So although Clairvius' sister Angelica and other family members didn't seem to be aware of the tribunal that was being called for Clairvius, there appeared to be no love lost between them. Prior to his becoming a zombie, Clairvius fought constantly with his brothers over money and land. He also impregnated multiple women across the Artembanite Valley and took no financial responsibility for them. As a result of his lack of financial burdens, Clairvius was independently successful, essentially at the expense of the greater community. When Clairvius returned, Angelica and another of his sisters 
sisters told him to leave the village, and they refused to release any of the family land to him, even though he had made claims to the land in national courts. Despite his miraculous return to them, Clervius Narcisse remained a dead man. So while I was doing the research, a lot of articles that focus on it don't really go in depth, and most of them you know, didn't really cover any of this uh, infighting in his family. So they made it seem like, you know, he returned 18 years later, and the first person he saw in the open air market was his sister and they had this like magical reunion and I was really surprised when I actually started reading in the serpent and the rainbow about (laughs) this dispute this ongoing dispute between he and his family and the fact that he wasn't really that I guess that good of a person so it was interesting that this has kind of fallen out of the more common narrative about the story it really took some digging just to find out he wasn't welcomed home with open arms yeah, I think that his story is actually somewhat more fascinating than the end result of <laughs> The Serpent on the Rainbow, just because of, of all of that backstory. And maybe you should write a screenplay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's turn this into the movie, The Story of Clairvius, because it's a tragic return, at least. So the mystery of why Clairvius was made a zombie may have been solved, but the mystery of how remained. So Davis first contacted Marcel Pierre, a book or who he knew was capable of making the zombie powder. Pierre also had a reputation as a charlatan. Uh, the first time he re- prepared the powder for Davis, uh, Davis immediately knew that the powder that he prepared was fraudulent, partially because he recognized the plants that lacked phytochemical significance, and also because he had prepared the powder in the presence of young children. Eventually, Davis proved his worth to Pierre by pretending to pour zombie powder onto his hand, and Pierre agreed to make the real zombie powder for Davis. So this is kind of similar to the movie, right? Yeah, it it's is. like very loosely adapted, but I feel like there are little bits in pieces. Wade Davis is kind of almost an adventurer as much as a scientist. He got very involved in this task, maybe to the detriment of his reputation among some of his scientific peers, but made for two best-selling novels. So... Yeah, every time I think of zombie powder, though, I, I want to say zombie power. <laughs> <laughs> But part of the deal in exchange for this information was that Davis had to accompany Pierre on this gruesome task, which ended up being required to make the powder. So together they robbed the body of a small child from a grave, who was a baby girl. She had been dead for no more than a month. Boo. Yeah. Well, yeah. Next is that uh, Pierre crushed the skull of the girl and used the bone fragments in the zombie powder, along with, yeah, wait for it, freshly killed lizards the carcass of a toad that was later identified as uh, Bufo Marinus, Poi Grotter, which is AKA the itching pea, and it has urticating hairs that can be cut like slivers of glass. And then finally, a puffer fish. See, you might have thought between last episode and this episode that we forgot that, you know, the name of our podcast is based on a true crime. So why are you doing these weird kind of mystery movies rather than crimes? But hey, last week, prescription fraud. This week, grave robbing. Crimes. Boom. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We'll get back to our serial killers next week. So in the end, Dr. Davis was able to obtain zombie powder specimens from several other bokors in different locations, in addition to this sample, which he purchased from Pierre. And they had a variety of different ingredients, which included toads, tree frogs, snakes, lizards, centipedes, and sea worms. However, there were three ingredients which were common to the preparation of all of the zombie powders. The first was charred and ground human bones. Ooh, a very important ingredient. Yeah. The second uh, were plants with urticating hairs or spines or toxic resins or calcium oxalate crystals. And the third was pufferfish. So the first ingredient, the charred human bones, they're chemically inert, but they do kind of serve, I think, a spiritual purpose. They may also dissuade people from... (laughs) Making zombie powder in excess, I think it's the kind of thing that, you know, there was a reason that part of the deal that Pierre made was that he had to go with him on this mission because it's not okay, generally. Yeah, Robin Graves. Yeah. Yeah, you're getting in trouble. Yep. So the plants with urticating hairs, though, at least Davis thinks may have served a purpose. So he thinks that they're added to help the poison get quickly into the victim's bloodstream by abrading the victim's skin. 
this is necessary because the powder is supposed to be introduced topically rather than ingested. So it needs to actually penetrate the skin to get into the bloodstream. The puffer fish, though, is the most important ingredient. So puffer fish contains tetrodotoxin. This is one of the deadliest poisons known to man. And the symptoms of tetrodotoxin poisoning include uh, malaise, paraesthesias, Uh, which is the numb tingling sensation, cyanosis of the lips, digestive disorders, pulmonary edema, hypothermia, respiratory difficulties, hypotension, aphonia, and complete paralysis. And many of these symptoms were experienced by Clairvius before his supposed death. And it sounds like a painful, like, quote, death with all those symptoms. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's why I won't eat fugu. So pufferfish is actually considered a delicacy in Japan where it's called fugu. And you may also recognize it from that episode of The Simpsons. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. We're already going to yep. make that reference. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so the toxin, the tetrodotoxin, is mostly contained in the viscera of the fish. So once that part is removed, it is generally safe to eat, although not without risk, which is, I think, what made it a delicacy at least as much as its flavor, which I would assume is raw fish flavor. (laughs) So there have been cases, though, of uh, tetrodotoxin poisoning of diners, including cases where the heartbeat and ventilation fall to imperceptible levels and individuals are actually declared dead before recovering. And these individuals reported being aware of their surroundings, but unable to move, which was exactly the case with Clarvius. Yikes. (laughs) Yeah. Go for sushi and end up undead. Yeah. But if you'll remember, the zombie powder is actually only half of the equation. So once he woke up and was brought to the plantation, he was actually being fed a different substance to keep him in the zombified state. You know, after these diners recover from tetrodotoxin poisoning, they're not mindless zombies. And a number of Bokors told Davis that after their victim is disinterred, he or she is beaten into submission and then constantly force-fed a paste that's made from sweet potatoes, cane syrup, and datura. And datura is also fittingly known as the zombie cucumber, and it contains atropine and Scopolamine. Uh, these are hallucinogens which induce delirium, confusion, psychosis, and amnesia. So should have known it was the zombie cucumber. It's right in the name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Zombie cucumber could be a horror movie as well. Creature feature. Surprise, it's not already a horror movie. <laughs> right. Okay. So based on that, it sounds like um, Wade Davis got everything figured out, right? Not quite. <laughs> Yeah, I guess not, because there's still quite a bit of controversy surrounding the topic. It's not all about the fact that he helped rob a baby's grave. Although some of it definitely is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, robbing a baby's grave is a baby's grave. It's like is the worst good. kind of grave to rob, too. Yeah, mm. I know. It's Fresh sad. baby grave. Yeah. Terrible. So researchers Yasumoto and Kao published two papers where they studied the zombie powders brought back by Davis, and they found only trace amounts of tetrodotoxin. They also found that half of the puffer fish specimens which davis brought back that he said were used in the zombie powder are non-toxic on the other hand benedict and riviere in switzerland tested a sample of zombie powder and found that it did contain tetrodotoxin at a concentration of 20 micrograms per gram Leo Roizen of the New York State Psychiatric Institute then tested a sample of the powder on rats, and when it was applied topically, he found that it did induce a state of suspended animation, which is similar to that seen in victims of fugu poisoning. However, when Davis himself tried to repeat the experiment, he found no biological activity whatsoever in the rats. So I guess really the biggest issue with the tests seems to be the variability of the zombie powder samples themselves. As Yasumoto and Kao pointed out, the pufferfish were only toxic half the time. So I guess it really seems likely that not all of the zombie powders would have tetrodotoxin, although that doesn't necessarily mean that the powder which was used on Clairvius and others like him did not. So there does seem to be a remarkable overlap between Clairvius' symptoms and post-death experience and that of individuals accidentally poisoned by pufferfish. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Yasumoto and Kao seem to really have it out for Wade Davis. Right, because oh. they're saying, oh, most of the samples weren't toxic. The puffer fish is not the reliable like control here, right? Yeah. It like, doesn't contribute the main properties of the zombie powder. Yeah, And these papers that they published were published over a number of years. So this is like some Hamilton, Aaron Burr shit going on. <laughs> they had t-shirts um, printed up that were yeah. like, uh, puffer fish do not have zombie power well it's they say their samples it was like nanogram per gram levels of tetrodotoxin but you know they don't offer an alternative explanation and i do think that between the fact that some samples did test positive for tetrodotoxin you know the fact that he knows that there are puffer fish in these powders like I'm sure that it does not work 100% of the time, but it has at least, I feel, worked enough times that we have this one very well-documented case. I don't know what it could be besides tetrodotoxin, except I guess magic. <laughs> so, yep. um, magic zombie power. Magic. I mean powder. <laughs> so now that we've talked a bit about Clarvius's specific case... And the chemical basis for zombification, I feel like our discussion wouldn't be complete without at least touching upon the spiritual beliefs surrounding Haitian zombies. So the voodoo religion and society of Haiti has its roots in Africa, where many of the island's inhabitants were taken in the 1500s to be slaves on sugar and coffee plantations. In The Serpent and the Rainbow, Wade Davis writes that the word zombie is likely derived from the Congo word nzambi, which means means the spirit of a dead person. So although stories of the walking dead already existed in Central and West Africa, the experience of slaves in Haiti definitely helped to shape kind of a new take on the zombie. Uh, Haiti expert Amy Willens wrote, quote, to become a zombie was the slave's worst nightmare, to be dead and still a slave, an eternal field hand. For many slaves taken from their homeland and forced to work on these plantations, the idea of eventually entering into an afterlife was really their only salvation. And there was nothing more terrifying than the thought of being forced to remain on earth forever doing the bidding of others. Um, However, in modern times, uh, zombies in Haiti may have taken on more of um, a comforting role, actually. So Roland Littlewood and Chavannes Duyon examined three individuals whose families claimed they were zombies. For two of these individuals, they ran DNA testing and actually proved that they were not related to the people who claimed to be their families. Um, One of these individuals was a man with brain damage due to anoxia, and the other was a woman with a fetal alcohol syndrome. And the author suggested that the families may have actually mistaken um, mentally ill or brain damaged individuals who are often found wandering the streets in Haiti to actually be zombie versions of their loved ones. Well, and so. as we've seen, I guess, I don't know, the first thing that came to mind was the imposter, how families are eager to, you know, accept a loved one who has returned, regardless of how closely they resembled that family member. Although I guess in that case, it, it goes <laughs> yeah, you, from a crime. You know, you know my opinion on yeah, that case. No, I no. do think they're covering a yeah, crime. No, so com- maybe we'll get into that later. Yeah. Um, might be for a, a mini-sode in the future, because that's one of my favorite true crime documentaries for sure. Yeah, I know. I've seen it like um, four times. It's so yeah. good. But it does seem that, you know, for these individuals in Haiti, the belief in zombification actually provided them um, maybe some comfort or temporary respite, or at least, I guess, a deferred sense of loss by embracing these strangers as zombie family members, essentially. Unfortunately for poor Clairvius Narcisse, his family did not embrace his return, despite the fact that he's maybe the the one true zombie here. Yeah, and it's it's sad to think about, but the culture where, you know, the idea of the zombie is so widespread, I guess you're going to get all sorts of varieties of reactions to people coming home or Mm. suddenly showing up, right? Maybe if he had been a little nicer to his family, they would have embraced him, or he wouldn't have been turned into a zombie in the first place. Yeah, I guess so. So finally, we just want to end on the source for the book and the movie title, The Serpent and the Rainbow. So in Voodoo, Dambala is the serpent spirit and the primordial creator of all life. 
Aida Wado is his wife and female counterpart, who's usually associated with the sky and the heavens. Her symbol is the rainbow, so their story is also the creation story of the voodoo faith, which is summarized by Davis as follows. Quote, Within its layered skin, the serpent retained the spring of eternal life, and from the zenith, it let go the waters that filled the rivers up on which the people would nurse. As the water struck the earth, the rainbow arose, and the serpent took her as his wife. Their love entwined them in a cosmic helix that arched across the heavens. In time, their fusion gave birth to the spirit that animates blood. Women learned to filter this divine substance through their breasts to produce milk, just as men passed it through their testes to create semen. The serpent and the rainbow instructed women to remember these blessings once each month, and they taught men to dam the flow so that the belly might swell and bring forth new life. All right. So for the discussion questions, I guess one of them I have is weigh in on the tetrodotoxin controversy, but I think I couldn't help myself and I interjected all of my comments while we were reading it. Do you have any opinions about whether you think tetrodotoxin is the reason for zombification or not? Are you team, uh, was it Yasumoto or team Davis? Uh, I, I could see how they're probably very skeptical of the tetrodotoxin, but I, I think you're right that they sort of had it out for Davis and his research. So I would lean on the side of the tetrodotoxin being a, an essential ingredient in zombie powers. I mean, the zombie powder, but it does raise an interesting discussion about, like you said, not every batch of the zombie powder is necessarily going to work. So I, I don't know what like the success fail rate is for the zombie powder to work, but it obviously isn't 100% mm. accurate. And we at least know that Marcel Pierre had a reputation already as a bit of a charlatan for selling zombie powders that didn't work. So maybe for some of those, they were prepared correctly, but you know, it was a non-toxic species of pufferfish. I don't know. So I guess I didn't go for the most basic question, but I think we might be on the same page. So you do believe that the Clairvius Narcisse who came back is the Clairvius Narcisse who was buried yeah, oh, yes. I, I I believe he is he is definitely the one that was buried. We're talking about his age at the time and how, you know, he was probably just under 60 when he came back. And that's you would completely be able to recognize someone less than 20 years later if they were already in their 40s at yeah. the time that they disappeared. Yeah, I agree, but you know, we should probably point out at least from what I read, they never actually dug up his grave. So yeah, that's interesting yeah. that they they wouldn't have done that. Well, I guess they kind of logicked it out and assumed that if it was not Clarivius Narcisse and he was kind of playing the long con, they would have already dug up the body and replaced it with something else, or you know, maybe the people who dug him up replaced him with a different body. And it seemed like from you know all of the 200 testimonials there wasn't really a question as to his identity so. right so it could have been i mean he was dug up within the first 24 hours of burial i think that he would have been able to have been zombified and then dug up and then carried off to work in the plantation it's not like the guy was rotting in, in the ground <laughs> for you know years before he was brought back that would have been a way crazier story <laughs> Although this one was pretty crazy. But I will point out that I did read about one other case of zombification. It was a woman and they actually did look in her grave and someone had, you know, her body was gone and there was just a bunch of rocks in there. So kind of interesting. Wow, you know, he's, yeah. Yeah, he's not alone. So she, um, you're saying she turned into rocks. That's kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah. Transmutation. Um, <laughs> I think the big thing about Clarvius is for a lot of these other zombie cases, their deaths aren't even well documented, whereas Clarivius died in a hospital. He has a death certificate that was signed by a relative, and he was under the care of two doctors, you know, one from the U.S. and the other trained in the U.S. So it was, like, legit. <laughs> the documentation was very legit, which is not the case in most of these, these zombie situations in Haiti. So one last quick question before we uh, get into the movie. So, David, would you rather be a Haitian zombie or would you rather be chased by Romero zombies? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, I've thought about zombies a lot and especially Romero zombies. After learning more about the Haitian zombie, though, 
and the the way like they came back and how kind of sad it is i think that would just be really tragic i think being chased by romero zombies i'd be too occupied to really be sad um i think it would just be and you'll stand a good chance they're slow zombies right yeah even in with the the mass hordes of them because you know the strength in numbers they're they're still slow and lumbering i think they're a threat they're a threat when there are a lot of them but yeah i would go for a chase by romero zombies well, I'd you? rather have you be my Haitian zombie and just do whatever I say. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Out there mowing the lawn 24 hours a day, <laughs> cooking. <laughs> oh. Okay, how about you? Would you rather be the Haitian zombie or chased by the Romero zombies? I, too, would rather be chased by Romero zombies. I, you know, agree with the Haitians that their idea of being a zombie is just way darker and more terrifying existentially than just being a reanimated corpse. I think the Romero zombies and kind of our zombies that came after that, um, they don't really go into what happens to your soul after you become a zombie. And I think because... These zombies are usually people who are like pretty dead and rotting. As my interpretation was always, it has nothing to do with the soul. It's just the body reanimated. But with Haitian zombies, your soul is trapped. That's why your body is controlled because the Bacor has your soul and they're using it to control your body and you're just at their will. And yeah, no thank you. <laughs> yeah. Give me a hundred Romero zombies. A hundred of them coming after you. Yeah. Okay. I can take them. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, yeah. oh, I know you could. I think when I did a Facebook test, so it was like, you would survive one day. <laughs> <laughs> I think I survived a couple months and then got killed in uh, Mexico when I was bending over to tie my shoe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very sad. Yeah. Um, but quickly before we go into the movies, so the sources, um, obviously the book, uh, Serpent in the Rainbow by Wade Davis, available on Amazon, <laughs> which is where I bought it biology-online.org has an article called Dead Man Walking with a lot of the information. Creolicious.com has an article, The Curious Case of Clairvius Narcisse and Other Instances of Haitian Zombies. And then finally, uh, Atlas Obscura has a really interesting article. Um, it's called How Haitian Slave Culture Gave Life to Zombies. The end. <laughs> okay, cool. I learned so much about Haitian zombies that, I mean, I had no idea about, but specifically Clarivius' story, you know, we're going to talk about the film here in a minute. He is, he sort of acts as like kind of a movie monster zombie. He's, I mean, he's not a monster, but he's briefly in it. That was really, really good. And this is another case where we watched the movie before I did any of the research. So I, I almost prefer it that way. <laughs> I might start doing that for all of them. But it was really interesting reading about this story. And even though I'd say this is even more loosely inspired than Dead Ringers, it was, it was kind of cool seeing where kind of the idea was sparked. Exactly. That's Spark of Life. All right, cool. So we're going to switch over to the discussion of Wes Craven's The Serpent and the Rainbow here in just a second. From Wes Craven, director of A Nightmare on Elm Street, comes a story of the forbidden world between life and death. There's a door to the mystical. And you just walk through it. Somebody brought him back from the grave. And I want to know how they did it. Death is not the end. I'll take your soul. You think you can take these people's secrets and just walk away? In the shadows of the imagination lies the ultimate nightmare. Don't let them bury me. I'm not dead. The Serpent and the Rainbow. The Serpent and the Rainbow is a 1988 film based on the book by ethnobotanist Wade Davis and directed by Wes Craven, which tells the story of Dennis Allen, an ethnobotanist anthropologist who goes on assignment in Haiti during a period of political unrest to discover the secret of a voodoo drug for a pharmaceutical company who wants to utilize it as an anesthetic. With the help of a fellow researcher and local witch doctor, they quickly discover that the local law enforcement may be more than they bargained for and willing to do anything, including turning Dennis into a zombie to protect their secrets. 
So up until the local law enforcement part, anyway, it's pretty similar to the premise of The Serpent in the Rainbow, right? It's an ethnobotanist going yes. to Haiti yes, and searching for the drug kind of at the behest of the pharmaceutical industry to use as an anesthetic. And Dennis Allen, two first names, Wade Davis, two first names. It is two first names. <laughs> I guess Davis is not often a first name, but as I keep saying it, David, that's, that's a first fine. name. So. I kept typing it as David, too, so <laughs> controlling my mind like yeah. a bacor. Right. So, uh, yeah, that's a basic overview of the film. But speaking of Wade Davis, uh, who is the author, he agreed to sell the rights to the book with a couple of demands. And those demands were that director Peter Weir, who was uh, the director of Harrison Ford's Amish drama Witness back in 1985... And would also later direct Robin Williams and Dead Poets Society. And also, even later than that, The Truman Show. If he would direct it, and then it would star Mel Gibson, he would be happy. Well, that decision didn't age well. Right. Mel. <laughs> yeah. Talking to you, Mel. Yep. Mr. Mr. Gibson, it's kind of good that you didn't sign off for this yeah, film. Yeah, Bill Pullman was a much better choice. Oh, wait. I'm getting ahead of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Paxton? R.I.P. No, it's Bill Pullman. So... We were talking about how the story takes place in Haiti, and a lot of the locales are authentic. It was filmed... Wait, I want to know how they got away with changing it, because it did not star Mel Gibson and did not have Peter Weir as the director. Yeah, it so did, did not. So did they just and... have like a verbal agreement and then be like, yoink, no, take backsies. Yeah, I'm sure it was... Essentially. A, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they were like, you know, they had his ink on the contract and however they worded it they probably had now because i think a lot of times with direct or authors being involved with films they only have so many rights to the creative decisions that can be made in the movie and i'm sure there was something written in there somewhere in the contract there was no documentation of him throwing a fit in terms of neither of those requests happening right. so it could have been a case where they were like oh well we met with them and they were busy or they were out for pizza or something and yeah. never called us back. Uh, so. <laughs> but, you know, I think you could see Peter Weir being an interesting choice, but it does sort of speak to the fact that uh, this was not a film that originated with Wes Craven. So it was, so it was maybe not of, even originally going to be a horror movie. No, no, no. It was like, he didn't write the script. So the script was already being put together mm -hmm. and Wes Craven directed it and put his, style into it but he didn't start from scratch in terms of this film it was going to get made regardless of who was in charge yeah. uh, behind the scenes so the locale plays a big part of the story and they did film in haiti they also filmed in uh, santo domingo and their dominican republic when they were filming in haiti however some of the things that happened in the film rang true when the local government informed the cast and crew while filming that they couldn't guarantee their safety, there was political strife and some civil turmoil going on at the time. So they relocated the rest of the shoot to the Dominican Republic. One interesting thing when we talk about Wes Craven, he's had trouble in the past with films getting through the MPAA with an R rating. A lot of the times he's had films that have not been able to get the R rating in order to get on screens across the country. One of the notable films, uh, which was, I guess, his his first feature film, Last House on the Left, did not even pass the R rating. So it got an unrated classification. The MPA would not give it the R rating. And so he and his producer, um, Sean Cunningham, who you will know from the Friday the 13th series, they went and went to a production house nearby they found a couple of frames of the R rating, they slipped it into the film, and then they pasted the R rating onto the movie's poster and got it out. How is that okay? That can't be okay. 1972. I think everything was okay then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that sort of grindhouse uh, film that ends up having an R rating and getting into all the theaters at the time is something else. I'm really curious what it was that you know they wouldn't let slide for that r rating because i've seen some r-rated movies that like the gore violence sex it seems like they can show anything yeah well there was an attack on horror movies in the 80s where essentially nothing could get unscathed with an r rating and every all of the horror movies at the time were basically given an x and then they had to cut 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 which 
means that there are versions of these films with seconds of scenes that were edited out just in order to fulfill the MPAA's requirements. And Nightmare on Elm Street was one of those films where they ended up trimming 13 seconds out of it, a lucky number 13, in order to get the art cut. Otherwise, that would have been unrated and no one would have been able to see it except like if you're on 42nd Street in New York City. What was in those 13 seconds? Do you know? A lot of it, they're just really quick cuts of like dream sequences and Freddy's knives or, you know, just little bits of violence that are just enough to give it, push it over the edge of the R rating. Jeez. I mean, a movie like Evil Dead 2 was unrated and it's still unrated. It never got an R. It was oh, an X really? rated X, yeah. Evil Dead 2 yeah. is rated X. Yeah. It, it, That's it crazy. Yeah, it was never passed through the MPA. It's the, the tree scene, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. You can't cut that, though. It's iconic. Right, yeah. It could be the, I don't know, any, the blood coming out of the cabin <laughs> cellar or Henrietta. Who knows? It's mostly oh, Henrietta, probably. <laughs> but, yeah, so when, when we are talking about Wes Craven... He has had films that have had trouble getting out there, and this movie had absolutely no problem. Smooth sailing. They gave it an X. Uh, an X. <laughs> they did not give it an X. They gave it a, an R rating right away. So it got out there into the world, which was pretty cool. So how about we dive into the film? The Serpent and the Rainbow, 1988. It's a Wes Craven movie that I had not seen all the way through. When it first came out and I was a kid, it seemed kind of boring to me, a boring subject matter. I thought Haitian voodoos were cool. I remember watching parts of it on TV and really not being into it and just changed the channel. However, as an adult, I feel like this is a really great movie and a very strong entry in Wes Craven's filmography. And I think as we kind of talk through the the film itself, um, I'll try to point out some of the stuff that I really liked. But how about you, Chelsea? What'd you think? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I think that as a horror film, it did a really good job kind of capturing the the real horrors that you think of when you think of specifically Haitian zombification. This movie did come out after Romero's zombies already existed. So I think that it did a good job really separating the mythology. And I think that, you know, similarly to the idea of zombification, it's kind of a slow burner. So the end of the movie, you get a lot of really cool visuals, that I think I would kind of associate with something out of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. But early on in the movie, it kind of plays almost more of a thriller, like a Indiana Jones-style adventure movie. I think they did a really good job kind of slowly transitioning from that into the really crazy voodoo curse stuff. And you're kind of along for the ride with Bill Pullman's character you know who is going there as a scientist and then kind of getting roped into this crazy mystical world so i i really liked it yeah yeah it was a fun saturday night watch and it's funny you mentioned indiana jones and roger ebert gave it three stars and in his review he says quote in the movie pullman plays a cross between william hurt and indiana jones he's tall good looking He's a sensitive intellectual who is called upon to wrestle leopards, battle corpses, confront an evil voodoo leader, and eventually be buried alive, along with the deadly spider that makes itself cozy on his paralyzed eyeball. Oh, God, that scene. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) No. Nightmare. Yeah, it's pretty spooky. So I loved watching this movie. I would definitely add it to the library. I think there's like a a Scream Factory just came out with a big fancy Blu-ray last year that maybe consider adding once we get a little more established and maybe set up a Patreon to fund our film library. Yes, buy us Blu-rays. <laughs> yeah. All if right. you buy us a movie and ship it to us, we will cover it on the podcast. <laughs> I'm going to put that offer out there. Any movie based on, you know, true story, buy it, ship it to us, email me. I'll give you my address, but don't show up and kill me. Yeah, please Thank don't. You. Don't kill Chelsea at least. <laughs> oh, no, don't kill David either. <laughs> Or any of our pets, please. All right. So, you know, after all the research that you did into the case and then looking back at the film in just sort of a short window of time, I think Clairvius Narcisse's story has a lot of potential and it's, I see why he had such a small part of the proceedings of the film. I mean, they really want Dennis Allen, aka Bill Pullman's character to be the lead. He also has a romantic interest who is not, <laughs> yeah, 
I don't want to start off saying she's romantic interest because she's a fellow researcher who lives in Haiti. And there's that scene when he first arrives where he's like, oh, where's Dr. Marielle? And she turns out to be a beautiful woman and he's surprised, right? And that that's a big indicator that there's going to be some romance happening oh, yeah. at some point in the movie. Perhaps even doing it under a waterfall. <laughs> yeah, that was incorporated yeah. in there as well. Yeah. But, you know, you're talking about that connection to A Nightmare on Elm Street. And the movie starts off with Dennis going on sort of this exploration in the Amazon. And he falls into a dream sequence, which is while he's under the influence of mind-altering substances. And that allows some of the fantastic elements to to jump up into the movie right away. And that's when the the big bad is revealed in some foreshadowing, which is a pretty scary scene. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie, I loved watching him wrestle and snuggle with a friendly leopard but it was really cool when it kind of took that turn and the the kind of voodoo priest that he was cavorting with transformed into the villainous uh whatever his name Dargent. Is. <laughs> yeah Dargent, yeah. yeah so it, it definitely got you ready for them revealing him later on because you only see his face in that scene but when he you know returns to Haiti on his mission looking for the voodoo powder, you see him kind of, you know, almost as a an upstanding, he's not quite an upstanding citizen. He's the head of the corrupt police force. But, you know, he's dapper in his suit, doesn't say any words, and you just, you know who he is. Yeah, and I think that that is interesting in how he is a government official with power, but also because of the the culture, he's, uh, he's a bokor, right? Yeah. And I mean, that gives it a completely different level as a villain for a film is that just the Haitian culture being really different than if it had been a straight up, I guess, horror movie that took place in the United States. So do we want to kind of talk through some of the big scenes that stood out to each of us? Or do you want to talk about some of the the inaccuracies or kind of portions of the movie that are on par with the book? I I think it's we can start with that because there's not really much overlap. So it'll it'll be a short discussion. (laughs) Yeah. But I really enjoyed doing the research on Clairvius Narcisse because I think in addition to his zombification, he does have that really interesting backstory. So as we mentioned in the first half, there's not just the how of him being turned into a zombie. There's actually the why within this this culture. So this movie doesn't have any of that. Yeah. Christoph is the character who is the, the zombie with, with the paperwork to prove it. And he's in it just very, very briefly. It's much more about the hunt for the zombie powder. Yeah, the powder becomes the MacGuffin. Yes. And one of the things, though, that does mirror real life was how they end up creating the zombie powder. So those the yeah, big items are... they don't get it from a baby. Yeah, in this right. story. They don't go that far. Yeah, but they do get it from, from a really, corpse. really creepy corpse that actually appears to Dennis Allen a few times in uh, in dream sequences before he finally does dig up the body with the, the more friendly Bacor. I guess the other thing about the zombie powder was that Louise's character was also similar to Marcel, Pierre, yeah. in that he sort of made the false version of the zombie powder at first. And then once Dennis realizes that he was pulling a fast one on him, he's like, okay, I'll show you how it's really done, but you have to go out with me for three days and do all these crazy things and perform this ritual in order to produce the, the zombie powder. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely neat. And the book also goes a lot more into the, the more scientific aspects. So kind of hypothesizing what's in the powder. That aspect is missing from the movie other than kind of in the final freeze frame, they do the little paragraph that says you know, they discovered the tetrodotoxin and, you know, it's currently being studied for potential use in the medical field. Right. And that medical field in the movie, it, I felt there was an undercurrent of these two older white dudes who I guess run the pharmaceutical company. It's Schumacher and Cassidy. One of them is played by Michael Goh, who is Alfred in the Tim Burton Batman movies, mm-hmm. which is awesome seeing him just like a year before Batman came out in a different role. 
I felt through the whole movie that as soon as Darjeet or Louis discovers Dennis's true purpose for being in Haiti, then that was when all the trouble was going to happen. But that didn't seem to be the case with at least Louis's character. He seems to be a threat at first, but then in a way, I guess, begrudgingly befriends Dennis. Yeah, yeah. And he actually, in the end, becomes excited at the prospect of his zombie powder being researched and used more widely. And he asks Dennis to uh, make sure they kind of say that he got the powder from Louise, which is uh, a bit more meaningful because, unfortunately, for poor Louis, he does not make it to the end of the movie. He does not, unfortunately. But yeah, I think that there's like this MacGuffin aspect for the first half of trying to get the zombie powder. Then, you know, they go and undergo the, the ritual to make it. And he obviously is getting what he wants. I think the one thing that's frustrating about the movie is that Dennis or, well, Bill Pullman's character is so stubborn headed that he at one point is chased out of the country by Dargent and his crew, but then decides to return. He returns for love, David. Wouldn't you return to Haiti for me? I would. It's still, I was yelling at him while we were watching it, be like, I mean, as soon as he enters the country, he's going to get stopped. And he does. And this is, he comes back and what happens? Something very bad happens to poor Bill Pullman. He's turned into a zombie. Yes. Well, I was thinking of the scrolling piercing, but. No, that happens before he leaves Haiti the first time. Yeah. And yet he comes back. Yeah. He comes back after getting the nail through the scrotum. That's how you know it's true love. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So he doesn't get his scrotum pierced, but he gets something worse. He gets turned into a zombie. Yeah, he does. And this is when you get to see, I guess, how it would happen to a person, in, I guess, in cinematic terms. He gets the powder blown into his face. It is a hit and run, similar yeah. to the frightening incident. At least he didn't spray him with some water as a joke. And then it ended up being Oh, some God, sort of that case. Awful. Ricin or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. He gets the powder blown in his face and he's stumbling around Haiti, slowly becoming a zombie. And then it's revealed that Darjeet is controlling him. How do, how do, okay. The best, the best line, the line from the poster. So the powder works by killing him first and then he rises not really comes back to life but wakes up later so as he's kind of writhing on the ground the Haitians are you know looking at him and he's shouting at them don't bury me I'm not dead but then of course he medically speaking He is dead. So. But there's some shenanigans going on there with the doctor who's working with Darjan. Yeah. Darjan's like, oh, or at least no. not asking questions. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that burial scene, I feel like buried alive scenes are always pretty scary. That closed confines. I don't have claustrophobia, but if I can't sit up, I start to panic. If it's like sort of a, if it's a narrow space, I don't like it. Yeah. And buried alive, I mean, we could probably have a whole episode devoted to, you know, actually maybe that'd be a good topic for a minute said in the future movies about being buried alive or being buried alive as a horror trope and then the real life fears surrounding them prior to our modern medical equipment it was pretty hard to tell whether someone was alive or dead and that's why in victorian times people would have bells you know with the string going down to their coffin because they had found that there were people who were actually buried alive and you'd go into the coffins and see like fingernail marks And it became this widespread fear and people started getting buried with bells attached to their fingers. It's just really freaky to think about. And we could do that Ryan Reynolds movie. Oh, where he's in there the entire movie. I still haven't seen that. It sounds like it would be so unpleasant to watch. It does. Let's it's just like... watch the proposal again instead. <laughs> I mean, they did the movie, what, Phone Booth, where it was all Colin Farrell in a phone booth the entire film. It sounds even worse. Yeah. No, that was, it was, I actually pulled it off. It was really good. Yeah. I mean, it was good. It was really good. <laughs> it wasn't Serpent or Rainbow good because this is really a fun film. Well, so. other than some of the parallels and then some of the portions where they stray from the true story aspect, I think that it's a fascinating film that has an interesting look at Haitian culture. I don't know how, I guess, accurate that portrayal is. 
I'm sure a lot of it is amped up for the movie. I'm sure, yeah. Like a ton of it because there are elements of it that seem to rely so heavily on the the voodoo culture. But overall, I think it was a really great and different perspective for a horror movie. I agree, but I do feel like some of my favorite parts at least were just pure Wes Craven touches rather than something specific to the voodoo culture. The final scene. So after Dennis is buried, he's actually dug up by Kristoff in the graveyard and he's able to go. The There's a revolution in Haiti and the government that the police chief served is overthrown and the people storm his building and Dennis goes in and then kind of the powers of the Bokor start kicking in and he starts having these crazy hallucinations yeah um where he's walking down this hallway where there are like people locked in rooms on the side and they're like arms grow to insane lengths and are reaching out to grab him which really reminded me of the scene in nightmare on elm street with freddie with the really long arms yeah that's always freaks me out (laughs) um and just you know another a character another character kind of a, a good voodoo priest who is killed comes back and like smashes his own head the way they smash the head of the corpse like rips it off of his body it's just it's i don't even want to really try to summarize it because you can't summarize those visuals you right. Just, you if have you haven't see seen it, it yeah. just watch just it. Let all the action <laughs> yeah. unfold. And you're it's right, got though. a great ending. It's great. It's very satisfying. So really fun movie. Really interesting how they used aspects of Wade Davis's book in order to make something original, but based on a true crime. Yeah, I love this movie. I think it was really fun between this one and our last full episode on Dead Ringers. They're not all going to be, obviously, true stories that are turned into horror movies, even though David loves horror movies. <laughs> we will be doing many, many movies that are more on the the true crime, kind of more thriller movies, Zodiac-esque. But I really loved these two as a pairing because these are true stories about kind of horrible things. And I really liked seeing how the true stories were spun into horror movies that do kind of, they fit well within the genre. I, I would yeah. say, you yeah. know, they're they're really great horror movies. That's a good point. I think so. So uh, that's The Serpent in the Rainbow. I think Chelsea and I both recommend you checking it out if you haven't seen it. And also, if you're a big Wes Craven fan and haven't seen the film in a while, give it another watch. Yeah. Uh, so David, what's your now playing for this week? My now playing is a book and it's called Knights of the Living Dead. It's a zombie horror anthology novel, which is very odd timing for a couple of reasons. Not only that we just covered Haitian zombies, but also that it's edited by Jonathan Mayberry and George Romero, who just passed away, sadly. As I was in the midst of reading this book, it's so far really good. There's, it's as I said, short stories, and all of the tales within take place in the Night of the Living Dead universe, and they're canon. So it's all based on the rule set in the films and the timeline, although there's some flexibility in that they don't all have to be period pieces. So while they all take place, same rules, same universe, are canon, some take place in like 1968, some have references to modern events and i think that that's a pretty fascinating aspect of it it also features a story by george romero called john doe and i had happened to just like come across that particular story as we heard news that he passed away so but it's a it was a good one and that was just uh, sad but it's also a really good book destroy the brain destroy the ghoul yep exactly uh what's your now playing chelsea so my now playings this week are uh, podcasts. So oh, cool. haven't done a podcast in a while and we've made so many internet friends with cool people that have mostly true crime podcasts because I'm mostly curating our Instagrams <laughs> and I like true crime. So the first is Color Me Dead, one of our first Instagram connections and they have a really great new true crime comedy podcast. So their most recent case is actually the torture murder of Shonda Scherer. And many of the cases they've done, they're actually, they're crimes I'm familiar with, but they're ones that I usually have a lot of trouble stomaching, including this one. But the hosts, uh, Angel and Ember, are so funny that it makes it a lot easier to swallow. And I also think these are important stories to hear. (laughs) You know, it's kind of important to know what some of the worst stuff that humans are capable of because you should be vigilant. (laughs) So the other podcast is Something's Not Right, 
This is a really cool podcast. It's based in Nashville. So most of their cases, the true crime cases that they've covered. But what I really like is that it's not just limited to true crime. So actually their most recent episode is about the great train wreck of 1918, which occurred Mm. at Dutchman's Curve in Nashville. They did a really good job covering that case. They're two more awesome ladies. So you definitely go give them a follow and check them out. And then the final one is Homecoming. <laughs> one of my all-time favorite podcasts. One of the few kind of audio drama fiction podcasts that I listen to. And it's you know, it's a huge production. It's, the voices are Catherine Keener and Oscar Isaac. So I like to say that this is the best thing that Oscar Isaac has done, followed by Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's just, it's amazing. I don't want to say anything except just check it out. It is just an experience to listen to. So those are mine now playing. What's your coming soon? My coming soon is Valerian, the City of a Thousand Planets. I was going to say Valerian. <laughs> but also paired with the original comic Valerian and Loreline, which is by Pierre Christian and illustrated by Jean-Claude Meseret. So this film is directed by Luc Besson and he's an amazing director, but The Fifth Element is a visionary film and I love it and I am excited for the sci-fi neon glitter-esque uh, world that the movie looks like. So I'm very excited about that. Oh man, you stole mine. Yeah, but I think uh, <laughs> we've both had the same ones before. So what's your coming soon? <laughs> I mean, surprise. What's your coming soon, Chelsea? Well, now I have to think. I guess I'm going to go with since you stole Valerian, I'm going to go with Predators. So we watched Predator and we just watched Predator 2. Yeah. So I'm finding that I'm, I'm still going back and forth. <laughs> I like parts of them. I, li- I definitely like Predator a lot more than Predator 2. And I liked the end of Predator much more than the beginning of Predator. But I'm definitely sold. And I also really want to watch Alien vs. Predator. So I guess that coming soon would have to be Predators so that I could eventually get to Alien vs. Predator. Yeah, and Alien vs. Prey will have to stock up on some wine for that one. Oh, man. It's going to be <laughs> awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for listening, especially if you're still listening, because <laughs> yeah. I do have a bad habit of uh, occasionally stopping my podcast once they finish the case. So if you're still out there, thank you. And um, please follow us on social media. We're on Instagram at Based on a True Crime. We're on Facebook, Based on a True Crime podcast. And we're on Twitter at True Crime based and as we said in the beginning please 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 review reach out tell us if you like what we're doing or if you don't like what we're doing tell us what we can do better and um please enter our giveaway also (laughs) yeah be sure to enter that and uh we just want to say thanks for all the participation and it's been fun chatting about the serpent and the rainbow got to talk about west craven got to mention a nightmare on street a couple times yep you got to slip one one last mention in at the end all right (laughs) i did all right thanks for listening thanks Bye-bye. Death is but a door. Time is but a window. (laughs) We'll be back. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.